Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the middle of the Midwest pontificate on politics, geopolitical events, and everything in between. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. Craig, it's 4th of July week. Uh, we just celebrated the 4th uh, day before yesterday. Is that right? You're a big 4th guy, if I remember. You, yeah. You, no, you I, like the 4th of July. I, I love 4th of July. I love Independence Day. I, I love the season. I love the, you know, the time of year. I love cooking out. I love fireworks. So, um, yeah, it's it's all great. Uh, it came rather fast this year. And then this has been a strange week because yesterday felt like a Monday, and of course it wasn't. And no I, holiday should be on Tuesday. And then all of a sudden it's like tomorrow's Friday, which I'm still grappling with because it doesn't feel like Friday. I thought today was Monday. <laughs> right. Again, I've said this on the pod multiple times. I'm going to run for president, and I have like two things on my platform. And one is all holidays switch to a Thursday, the Friday afterwards a, a federal holiday. I like that. I also like the idea, my employer, if a holiday falls like this where it's like on Tuesday they, they go ahead and just give us Monday off anyway yeah, so we can have absolutely. a long weekend I, and I think that should be kind of like a rule of thumb because most people are going to take it off anyway yeah. how much work was going to get done on Monday None. the day before it's like come on and I hate the 4th of July it's oh. my worst holiday <laughs> Why is I that? can't stand it if you're a parent if you have a son oh, yeah. you just wait to get the call dad I blew my hand off dad my eyes out or you know I shot a firework so at some kid you know and I, I shot his eye out and it's also a bad day if you have pets because pets usually sure, don't like sure. the fireworks and also veterans with PTSD. It, I mean, Brandon, there's a lot of issues. I don't know if you know this, but Missouri, the great state that I'm from, <laughs> leads the U- U.S. in fireworks Injuries? purchased per capita. Oh, I thought you were going to say fireworks injuries. And <laughs> Brandon, maybe next year. I need to invite you over one year. Just on like July third, our neighbor to our neighborhood turns into Baghdad. Is it like a war zone? It is. It is. It's. Exp- Okay, so I took a walk at about 9.30 through our neighborhood. I could only walk down certain streets because they were blocked off by people shooting off their fireworks. The smoke was so thick, you couldn't see like two houses down. I, that's how much smoke is in our neighborhood from fireworks. You know, I remember when I used to spend time with my cousins in Missouri, and I remember being like uh, going on I-35 downtown on 4th of July evening one time where it was like that. Like the smoke was billowing up, and you couldn't see it's anything. brutal. It was brutal. Yeah. Just everybody stays out way too late. At least our folks, a lot of the kids have emptied out of our neighborhood. So by 1030 or 11, most people have calmed it down. But there's are, always those few that go oh, past yeah. like midnight and like into the early hours of the morning. And yeah. there'll be a crowd this weekend because the holidays are the middle of the week that'll think it's fireworks time again. And they'll just <laughs> shoot off what they didn't shoot off on on, on the 4th. Uh, please no. Like again, it's confined to one day. It's like, no, like it's. Uh, I couldn't take a week long celebration of America. <laughs> Brandon, are we going to talk about Supreme Court stuff? Yes, there's been a whole lot of decisions. There's a few left to come down, but there's been some really big key decisions this term that we need to talk about. And I was thinking about that last week because uh, we hadn't covered any of them yet. And uh, yeah, I guess, uh, where where do we start? Do you want to start with 303 Creative? Yeah, I mean, we can start. That's one of the most recent ones, which I think dropped last week. Um, so that, for the, those that don't know, Colorado has uh, a law, um, which I think they dub a human rights law, but essentially they have a law that um, basically uh, requires equal um, service, equal protection for all businesses to follow. Yeah. Um, so that was done in the wake of uh, the that cake shop, uh, the cake shop case, which yeah. is also out of Colorado, yeah. um, which went before the Supreme Court. And for those that don't remember that whole case where basically uh, 
bakery shop owners said she was should it be compelled to um, to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple mm-hmm. that was uh, against her religion. That went to the Supreme Court, but they didn't really like make a grand ruling on it. They kind of punted on it, if you they recall. Did. Yeah, they did. And I think this is just the cleanup of that of that decision. Yeah, because the court has also changed since then as well. So yeah. uh, Anthony Kennedy was on the court, the swing justice, and he's been replaced. And so the court looks a lot different than it did at that point. So this case is very similar, though, in that it's a web design um, designer who yeah. designs websites for um, weddings. Um, so similar type of case should it be compelled to, um, create a website for a gay couple. And this time the justices ruled for her on the religious freedom aspect yeah. and validating the Colorado law. And I think what was interesting is the first case that you mentioned, you're correct. And that was an equal protection under the law case. Yeah. This was a freedom of speech case. So I think what they tried to do is narrow down on exactly what is the behavior that falls under this ruling. And a website is different than walking to a bakery shop and asking for it is. a cake. Yeah. I think one of the hairs they split is there's a difference between products and services. And they, they, I think they, they came down with baking that wedding cake was a product and where this was more of a professional service that required more creative input and more usage of free speech by the, the woman who owned the, the web design shop to create the, the website. This was a First Amendment free speech case, not an equal protection case. So they pivoted to basically what I get out of this is in the, in the course of doing business and providing a service for something, for someone, if that service depends on your creative expression and your creative speech to deliver that service, you have the right to say, no, I don't believe in that and I do not wish to lend my voice to to this service to whatever you're trying to create. Yeah. And when it's said like that, I think everybody would agree with that. This is this is this is a reminder to everybody that the first amendment also covers your ability to say no. I will not speak on that because I do not believe that. And to me, this decision was ruled correctly because it preserves and highlights and reminds people that part of free speech is the ability to say, I will not lend my speech to what I don't agree with. Now, we can agree, disagree, gay marriage, should that be something that you're allowed to disagree with? That's not really what this was about. This was about this person, due to their personal beliefs, exercising their free speech abilities to say no to someone, I do not want to create that for you. Is that... I tried to make this argument to a couple different people and just got rocked. Just, what are you doing? This is discrimination. This is obviously unfair. While I can agree with that, it certainly, that isn't more important than saying the First Amendment doesn't give you the right to say no. And that's the right worth protecting. Right. And I, well, and I think there's a tendency to kind of lump this together with the Colorado bakery shop case or lump it together with any instance of where someone who's uh, LGBTQ may walk into a business requesting service and be denied. And I guess the the difficulty here, and this is also where some of the news coverage of this got very hyperbolic and over the top, because it said this opens up the door to basically just roll back LGBTQ rights in a number of areas to deny them service at hospitals and all kinds of things like, so again, I think that this is very narrowly defined. And again, and even though this is a very conservative court, 
we should be reminded that it was only a couple years ago, the same court, again, very small majority, but still, um, added um, sexual orientation as a protected class, uh, which was pretty land uh, uh, landmark decision. So I, again, this I talk about like rolling back rights would is not going to go back as far as some of the detractors think. I, it would. I This isn't a rolling back rights in my opinion. This is a preservation of rights, and it makes people uncomfortable when people want to say no to things. Yeah. And I think. I think it was Kagan in her dissent basically said this has nothing to do with denying uh, gay people access to anything. This has nothing to do with equal protection of the law. This is a free speech case. This case is about can the government compel your speech on something that you personally disagree with? And I think that answer is no. That they yeah. can't. I think they got this right. And I agree with you. The reaction to, to folks from the media was just over the top with this and just full of, of misinformation. Right. And yeah, there was no context, I think, in terms of the, the case itself. No. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did not see it in the same lens as, uh, you know, many others in terms of being like as alarmed about it. And I, the outcome is what I kind of expected as well. Yeah. And with this court. Uh, and we talked a little bit offline about it, but I was more focused on this side issue of how the case actually got in front of the court, yeah. which the um, instance or example that was used of someone who came requesting a cake, uh, it, it turns out, it sounds like is not a legitimate. It's pretty made up. It's a basically made up. And, yeah. and this probably happens more often than we know, but it's essentially sure. made up to get this case in front of the court. Uh, and and get a ruling. My issue with that is I feel like any case that arrives before the court should have solid example of you know a legal wrong that occurred or a violation of the law for it to go before the court because the court only hears what a couple dozen cases a year out of the thousands that yeah. are petitioned you know before so it's already a very small number and so I just feel like if you are one of the chosen few that they select then everything should be 100% verified true uh, because, again, if you can uh, jump the line, because there are plenty of cases they don't take just because of lack of time and bandwidth. I mean, they recess for a good, what, four or five months out of the year. Brandon, they got all those rich friends with all those trips to take. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What's the fun of being a Supreme Court judge if you can't go on Alaska trips and fly around on jets and stuff? I mean, talk about like the perks of having a job for life where you make several hundred thousand dollars a year. You only work half the year. And (laughs) Okay, here's how I think about this. Will we both agree that a Supreme Court judge is the pinnacle of the legal profession? Oh, completely. Like there's nothing above hundred percent. Okay. How many people at the, at the other heights of the legal profession make oodles of money? If you're the, in a big law firm and you're a big time lawyer, oh, yeah, you're you got to come in money. hand over fist. And now you mean to tell me at the pinnacle of the career, the highest that you could get, the most influential you can be, you make 275 a year and have a great pension. I can see Everybody that makes the Supreme Court will get on that private plane almost every single time, just simply because, again, they're in a high-paying field that they are at the top of, and those type of things just come with those type of 
I'm air quoting this, executive style positions. But but the problem is, from an ethical perspective, if it's somebody who's going to have interest before the court later or simultaneously, like there's no check on that, on the Supreme Court's power. There's nobody else to come in and say, oh, wait, we need to, you know, do a review of, you know, this decision because there was a conflict of interest. And I think that's the, the egregious thing here and why we need at least some type of laws or ethics policy because the lack of one, I mean, there's no higher power really in our country than the Supreme Court. Every other body has a check on it, essentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a governing body except the court. Like when they may, when they rule on something that, I mean, there's a reason they're called the Supreme Court. Nothing comes above them. That's yep. it. It's law of the land. I mean, that's immense power if you think about it. Huge power to shape the entire country. And, you know, they can't, um, I mean, technically they can be impeached, but that never happens. Very rare. Um, but they have jobs for life. And the, the the conflict of interest thing is a real thing, especially when they rule on cases that impact, because we often leave that out. We focus on these cases that have far-reaching magnitude, but there's cases they rule on involving private corporations and sure. involving, you know, private um, corporate interest. And that's where this gets really dicey, especially with the... You know, the private jet use and all that. Do you think with the, the cases that came out on this this docket, because there were some biggies, yeah. this affirmative action, the, the legal theory we're going to talk about, do you think some of the, the Democrats' attacks on the court were designed to soften them up for this, to try to get them, to move them, or to push them in an area, or make them think twice about, well, shit, we're already getting pounded with ethics complaints. If we do something that is perceived as taking rights away from from the LBGTQ community, we're really going to get it. Well, I mean, for all, all these attacks out of pro vote, these didn't just come out of nowhere, and no. they definitely have an agenda attached to them. Well, they do, but I think more that agenda is more aligned with um, fundraising, activating grassroots support, uh, mobilizing voters in key races, because I think that's where it's going to have the most traction. I, the law, it's been longstanding that Democrats have struggled to get their voters as energized about Supreme Court uh, vacancies yep. and about appointments and about judges, um, unlike Republicans. I mean, if you think about Republicans for years, they it's been this hallmark of their platform to reshape the court, you know, when it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and appoint conservative justices. And Democrats have never really responded to that or no. have been activated the same way. But now that has shifted. Now that Republicans have a strong conservative majority on the court, now you see the left activated and paying attention, especially in the wake of the overturning of Roe. And so I think that's I'm more in line in terms of what the rhetoric was meant to do because I don't think. I don't know that they ever believed it was going to switch minds on the court because, I mean, it, that kind of thing usually doesn't. I mean, why would the court care? Because, again, they can't do anything to yeah. them, um, essentially, right now as the politics stand. So I, I think it was more meant to just activate their base voters and keep the issue alive um, headed into next year's elections, maybe somewhat with the off-year elections um, later this November in Kentucky and Virginia. Um, where there's governor's races and state house races that they want to contend. I think the problem is that, and I don't know the exact amendment numbers, but the the concept of freedom of association butts right up against equal protection of the law all the time. And if you look at the Constitution, as it was originally written and its original intent, there is nothing in it that says, until you get to the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment, that says... If I don't want to serve X, Y, or Z at my restaurant, I am completely within my rights to do so. 
there's a huge contingent of of libertarian and conservative pundits out there who will just say it should be completely legal for someone to refuse to serve dinner at a restaurant they own to fill in the blank. It really doesn't matter because in this country, I am free to associate with whomever I like. And then the free market takes care of the rest. If I don't serve you because you have a NATO shirt on and I'm not going to serve anybody who supports NATO, there's a restaurant right behind me that will. I right. probably won't stay in business long. Although, we, I mean, we had already decided on some level which cases that, you know, where the line was drawn, though. I mean, the Civil Rights Act. Sure. Of, you know, there has to be lines for sometimes. Yeah. 1967. So there were lines drawn to say, like, no, we're like, we're not going to allow segregation when it comes to race, mm-hmm. um, you know, which are all correct. Right. And should have been done so uh yeah I, there's never a, a case in point where we would return to the you know complete libertarian uh philosophy of just anything goes but but yeah it gets much more dicey when you get beyond kind of those obvious uh lines into you know other characteristics and into orientation and into and, and where you draw that as you said like it's very different providing a service like a website than having an establishment that's supposedly open to the general public correct because a website designer each and every day makes uh arbitrary decisions i would mm-hmm. say and deciding which clients they take on and which they don't for a variety of reasons so brandon you hang out on the web a lot and you're kind of a web person designer I'm totally butchering what I was going for. Just trying to say, you know a lot about websites, how yeah. the internet works, how to market on Digital, the web, yeah. digitally, and, and all of that. And all that. So what this basically, this ruling does is reinforce, if I come to you and say, I have a Nazi site that I need put up, and I need you to put these swastikas on it, and here's some verbiage about I want on it, but I also like you because you do this a lot. Can you help me work through this to make sure it's the best it can be? You you You'd should have no, the right yeah. to say no to say to no, that, right? yeah. Again, what is the difference between that rights, yeah. and the person requesting the gay wedding site except the fact that we all find the fact that you wouldn't work with a gay person disgusting? Yeah. That's really it. I mean, the people who got so irate about this didn't think about it for, for five minutes because the one scenario we hate is the scenario that it's on. Right. The person refusing to do something for a gay person because they're gay. But if you take two seconds and think a few more scenarios, you can come up with a hundred that you support. Right. And, and I think, and to your point, I think when it comes to religion um, and freedom of association, butting up to access like this is a constant tension, like there's always going to be cases where we have to draw lines and then cases where like it's not going to be 100% in a case, right? I mean, because then a case that comes to mind, which I don't know if the Supreme Court has ever actually ruled fully on this, is that you have the instance in um, with pharmacists at some pharmacies who would not dispense the abortion after pill to yeah. women because they said it violated their religious rights. But that's a very different example because that's a— So this ruling doesn't impact that at not all. At all. Not but at I, all. I'm just bringing that all. up to show that yep. that's why these issues are much more complex. Yeah. And it's not black and white. It's gray. And you have to decide on the merits based on different factors, based on something that's open to general public, based on something, uh, a product that should be available to everyone, yeah. you know, things like that. When you take a job, knowing that this is something that you can dispense or that you're supposed to dispense. For, anyway, there's a lot of different issues. But like someone who's like a website designer or someone who's in any creative 
um, industry, any creative vein, like they, every single day, they take on work or reject work based on um, Mm -hmm. preferences, their own personal preferences based on time commitments, based on what they agree, don't agree with. And you can always go back. I think you could make an argument that a web designer in some aspects is an artist. And as an artist, they can say, you know, um, I should have the personal right and the conscience to be able to decide um, which art I decide to take on or do versus what I don't. And so that's, I think, where, too, like you can make the, the solid argument. And so that's, again, separates it from some of those other cases. Legal amateur podcasting is some of the most funnest form of amateur podcasting. <laughs> let, let me give you this scenario. Brandon, you are a world-renowned chef, okay? Yeah. Me and my friends, we pay for a private dinner catered by you, Okay. You give us the menu. We, we, we agree on the menu with the food, but we want it displayed. It, we want you to, to whatever you bake, we want you to display it in a very disgusting manner. We want you to do some things with visuals that things maybe you're just not comfortable with, with how you present the food to us. We've got some weird party going on, you know, maybe we want you to shape things, whatever it is. Can you say no to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Well, and that's the thing, too, with cases like that or with, like, the web designer, I think we often forget, unlike some of those cases like, uh, you know, bricks-and-mortar establishment that, you know, sells a cookie-cutter product or, you know, a a Chotsky or something. Um, In most of these cases, the artist or the designer, they leave their imprint on that work. Yes. So the web designer's name is somewhere on the website. Yeah, Um, absolutely. You know, if you're a a chef, you know, your name is going to be associated with that work. Correct. And so that is even more reason that you would want to have the ability to have say over what you do or don't do. The Constitution seems to do a really good job of defining what our freedoms are. It seems to struggle when it tries to push us together to all get along. Those are the areas that seem to always be in to be in question. Always in tension, yeah. And I think another issue that this case helps out a little bit is I have no skin in, in, in the religion game. I'm an atheist. I am a non-believer. But... Are we telling religious people that you're only religious in the confines of your four walls of your worship on Sunday? And after that, you got to leave your religion there because you can't bring that into your everyday life. I say no to that. If you're a religious person, you have the right to be a religious person 24 hours a day in all aspects of your life. Now, you may have to deal with some consequences to that. Yeah. But I think it's okay that the government said if a person is religious or has religious beliefs, they can apply that in their business. I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Yeah, no, I don't either. And I I think the, again, and you should be able to adhere to that religion throughout the course of your day, be able to practice it. And I would say that the only times lines should be drawn is when that expression of religion if it were to get to a point where it would infringe on somebody else's sure. known rights or somebody else's ability to uh, practice whatever religion they want to or do what they want to do. So that's that's the only case. And sometimes that happens. And we have cases where, you know, one person's religious rights but, uh, but uh, just, you know, butt up against another person's mm-hmm. freedom of uh, yeah. expression or their own religion. Yeah. And so that's where we have to adjudicate, you know. <laughs> I agree. How about, what What did you think of the affirmative action decision? So I was, again, I wasn't too terribly surprised by that one, again, either, because um, that, 
uh, case was also one that I think we expected with the change in the, the court system um, and the majority on the court. And this had been kind of a long time coming. And yeah. I think, again, if you get past the hyperbolics, the last time the Supreme Court uh, ruled on affirmative action and upheld it, I think it was in 2003. I might be off a year or two on the right. Oh, is it 03? Yeah. Okay. Sandra Day O'Connor. I knew it was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor yeah. said that, you know, in 20 years' time, we fully expect that this uh, affirmative yeah. action will no longer be needed because we will be in a different place in society based on changing demographics and so forth. So I think, again, the court, even back then— could read the tea leaves and saw where we were going. And the fact of the matter is that we, as a society, we tend to frame everything even in racial terms as black versus white. But the um, primary, um, I would say the primary cohort that's most hurt by um, current affirmative action policies at big Ivy League schools are Asian Americans mm-hmm. who are um, less represented than they normally would be um, because of this focus on trying to have diversity um, in all cases. And I was I was reading something which I was fascinated about. There's entire courses that are built around helping Asian students write college entrance essays <laughs> that make them sound less Asian. So they can't um, so, they, so yeah. they don't they can't be uh, determined what race they are because that is such an issue for them. Um, and so and, and I think Two, this was kind of a this case was narrow as well because this applies to Ivy League schools. This does not apply much broader to that. And there are ways that you can uh, get at, which I think is more relevant, um, socioeconomic sure. status more so than race via the college entrance essay, which the Supreme Court even called out and said yep. that that's still an avenue for yeah. um, colleges to actually leverage and use that as a way to create more diverse student bodies. So again, this is one too, where I think there's been a lot of overreaction. At some point, we were going to move away from affirmative action. It was never meant to be a permanent part of our society. No. No. It was meant as a temporary corrective measure to help facilitate uh, the uh, econ- economic and academic opportunities, especially for African Americans who had been suppressed for so long in mm-hmm. society due to uh, Jim Crow and other laws. And so I think at, at some point now, and I think the point is now, like we have to look beyond that and move beyond that. And, um, and so that's what the court basically said. So I did some looking on this. And, and in 1978 was the first time the Supreme Court said affirmative action is constitutional. And you bring up a great point. That's in reaction to the ending of, of Jim Crow. The 150 years of legalized racism against black people, right. mostly in the South. That was just a few years yeah, after Brown v. Board of right, Education. Let's let that set it again. It was a reaction to the ending of the 150 years of post-slave racism in the South. Institutionalized, legal legal legalized racism. This just didn't come out of thin air. There there was all kind of reasons for affirmative action to come into place. And you're right, Sandra Day O'Connor in 2003, when she wrote the opinion, said this has about a 25-year shelf life on it. We suspect this will not be needed at, at some point in time. And then the Supreme Court and a couple of other decisions have chipped away at this since 2003. So we get to this point where it seems pretty clear that there's going to be a change in, in affirmative action. The media... Uh, to me, the, the media just flat out, it, if, if you're wondering, you know, I, I get upset sometimes when most right-wing bloggers and, and podcasters talk about the mainstream media and all of that. This is why. 
this is the part that they cannot defend because they did nothing to educate people on anything. They did nothing to tell them the history of this. Joy Reid had a guest that would, the night this broke on MSNBC who looked straight into the camera and said, boy, I just wonder if we'll ever have any more black doctors or black lawyers anymore. The ignorance of that statement in some ways summarizes the whole mainstream media's reaction to this. So, and what I, what I can't stand about the media is that, first off, there, there's four corners defined on this problem. How many people does it affect? How many schools does it affect? How many professions does it affect? Nobody talked about any of that. Or the fact that the Ivy Leagues, as, um, as far as college graduates go, represent such an infinitely small number. Tiny. And then if you look at the vast majority of African-Americans who graduate from four-year institutions, graduate from public institutions, or from um, historically black colleges mm-hmm. and universities, HBCUs. Yeah. I mean, we, we both worked in the college space for a time, and I think the yeah. number is there's 6,200 or 6,500 colleges in the United States if you throw everything right. into one big basket. I think this selective process only affects 72 institutions. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's right. And it's right, like yeah. 4% or less than 4% of all applicants go through this process. So first off, your doctor probably graduated from the University of Kansas or the yeah. University of Missouri or some other th- other institution state run and they're just they're perfectly fine. Right. The problem is is that these institutions pump out culture elites. People that graduate from the Ivy League, they have heightened influence politically, economically, socially. Yep. This is how we create and sustain the elites in our in our society. And that's what really what this is about. That's why, what, 30% of college kids in the Ivy League, or maybe this is just specific to Harvard, I keep using Harvard as an example for everybody, are there on legacy mm-hmm. let-ins, which the court has no problem with there. <laughs> so the court's telling Harvard... You can throw away every academic standard you have if someone writes you a check. That's totally, totally fine. They also told the Naval Academies, none of this applies to you. Because for you guys and the organization that you have to go into, diversity is absolutely required. Yes. So... We recognize in our military, which I feel pretty confident saying our military is one of the largest, most complex organizations in the world, for it to run, you must maintain these policies. I found that to be incredibly interesting, maybe. Yeah. And again, I think it offsets the potential impact of this case, the decision in general. So... Yeah, I think all of that being said, and you bring up legacy admissions, which, again, I do think that there's we're probably going to see a chipping away of that in time, if not via legally, then societal pressure, because there's just a lot more scrutiny, I think, of legacy admissions uh, and have been for a while now on this idea that somehow, you know, someone related to you can just donate a ton of money and you you can just walk right in. (laughs) Um, But but yes, I think all that being said. You know, the and the the thing here, too, is if you would have asked any of the media prognosticators, like they all knew that this knew decision this was, coming. was coming. No one was surprised by they this. They have telegraphed this for years. Yeah. 
The, the other thing, too, that— And there was that case, too, you, uh, which you alluded to, uh, it was several years ago, but uh, a quota system was shot down. I think that was University of Texas, yeah. where there was a student who had petitioned the court because of uh, of them using quota systems. So we had already started chipping back, yeah. at, you know, and so it was inevitable this was where we were going. And sticking with Harvard, uh, what I can find is anywhere between 6 to 12 percent of that population is African-American students. So it's not like 50 or 60% of Harvard is black right. all letting in on these on these programs. The fifth the the the, the 6 to 10 12% that's there, they all have great scores, great grades, great activities. Right. They just can't compete with the SAT scores and the other scores of the Asian kids. So it's not like we're pulling people who don't deserve an Ivy League education and putting them there. We're basically saying that the circumstances around your race, we're going to admit you, you do meet all the minimum scores. You just don't have the highest scores in, in the incoming class like some of the Asian kids do. Yeah, no, agreed. I was, when you were um, talking, I was curious, I was looking up because you said it was between 6 to 12% African-American Harvard. So as of 2021, um, in the United States at large, non-Hispanic whites are 59%. Hispanic and Latinos are the largest ethnic minority, 19%, and black Americans are at 12.6%. So what about, it's about what it is. Yeah. My point being is that it wasn't like black students were overwhelming the, the admissions no. into Harvard or represented a percentage much out of line in that 6 to 10% with what they, with what they represent in the overall pop, uh, population. Now, in some of these schools that already have like large Asian-American contingents, um, there's some thought that that's going to grow. So you're going to see 30, 40% of the student bodies be Asian descent um, as part of this. But again, um, without getting too in the weeds, there's also a culture of higher education uh, among many Asian communities, which is much stronger. Absolutely. Um, And so you see, and I would say when it comes to like test taking and, um, you know, achieving in terms of just drive and initiative. I mean, there's a reason that there's that tiger mom, you know, (laughs) moniker. I forgot about her. Right. That kind of, you know, gained traction in the last several years. So if you are going to, you know, uh, reduce the focus on race and you're going to focus more on academics, it's just inevitable that you're going to see more Asian Americans, you know, get admitted and benefit from that. So in the 90s, California got rid of affirmative action, surprising to most people. California being one of the most liberal states in the union, most people Mm -hmm. thought they would have been the inventors of of, um, affirmative action. Then in 2020, they re-upped it and said, nope, we, we still don't was it, want it. Was it 2020 or last year? I maybe, thought it was 2020. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was 2020. I, I knew it was in the last couple of years. So, so yeah, they re-upped it. And of all places, one of the most liberal yeah. states in the union. Yeah. So what happened? Well, it, for the first three years, yes, African-American and Hispanic, um, mostly African-American, enrollment declined. After that, they changed their admission uh, process. They came up with something called an adverser... My, my, my English is really slipping. A, uh, they came up with a score that, that basically is one of the criteria you're, uh, that they use for, for admitting. There's a word I just cannot say. Not advisory. Um, it's your adversary. It's your oh. adversary score. Why not that? adversary because adversary is like no, an opponent. Yeah. yeah. So the bad th- things that have happened, for example, if your parents didn't graduate college, 
that that's a point. Adversity. Adversity. Thank you. Yes. Why did I? Why can I come up with the word <laughs> adversity? Your adversity score. So this includes things like, did your parents go to school? Mm -hmm. What's your income level? What high school did you go to? Where is that located? And once they got this process worked out, they've actually increased enrollment for minorities across the board in the California system schools. My point is, this is easy. This is easy to handle and to manage. It's not insurmountable at all. Uh, That's correct. And in typical uh, uh, Chief Justice fashion, Roberts grabbed this and he wrote the opinion. And right in the opinion, as Roberts likes to do, he sticks a big O sentence in there that you could drive a truck through, where he basically says, while race can't be the only deciding factor, it can be a deciding factor. You can't just have a thing on the box, on, on the application that you check and say black. Yeah. But you can ask in the, in the, in the, uh, um, essay? In the essay yeah. about how race has impacted you. That can easily be considered. Right. So... They're not taking race out of consideration. They're basically just saying, hey, because you checked, you can't take the applications that say African-American on them, put them over here in a pile, and know so many of those are getting in. Right. But you can easily come up with a different admittance criteria that allows you to do more minority students. Exactly, yeah. I just don't see where the meltdown was on this. Yeah, I. it's overblown. Does the Supreme Court need to come out and make a statement on um, kind of precedent and how they see precedent. Because in the last year, they've taken two things that are Americans are pretty familiar with, Roe and affirmative action, and ripped those away. I thought the court was supposed to be more incremental change, not these big swipes. It seems like this version of the conservative court is just said, we're going to undo the last 30 or 40 years of the court that we think got too far away from originalism. Yeah, I, I mean, pretty much. And I think that's thanks to Trump's three appointees to the court, essentially, because these three people were nominated specifically with the stamp of approval from the Federalist Society that they were going to, you know, not be incrementalists. There's yeah. been this long uh, frustration by uh Republican um, jurists that the um, that they had been duped before with people yes. like Kennedy and O'Connor mm-hmm. and even going back to Souter, well, you know, that these were Republican appointees who were either just solidly in the middle or even left of center who would have rocked the boat. And, you know, there's been this drive for so long on just overturning precedent. Yeah. And so that's where we are now. I don't know that the court would ever you know, issue a statement because they tend to not um, do a lot in the way of education. But there would be a lot of benefit to, I mean, putting something out there, essentially. I mean, or just saying, here's the types of decisions that we feel were decided wrong, and we feel it's the charge of this court to write those. And we're going to do that. I mean, it's not going to change any minds or change how the reaction to those decisions, but... well. What was the one with um, the legal theory? So th- this one is one I'd been tracking a long time, and I actually had some fear that um, that we might get a bad ruling from this because, again, knowing the most recent additions to the court. So the legal theory, it's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, and this has been this wacky um, cockamamie theory that has been promoted by the ultra-right over the last several years. It's gained some traction among 
like the the professor from Claremont McKenna who is on Trump's legal team. The idea is that state legislatures are the supreme authority when it comes to all aspects of election law and um, election results within their jurisdiction. So um, that no courts, whether those be district courts, federal appeals courts, the U.S. Supreme Court can weigh in when it comes to how they conduct elections, when it uh, comes down to how those elections are, um, the results are tabulated, the counting. uh, So what's, I guess, striking to me is that if you go all the way back to 2000, Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court would have never been able to weigh into that and stop the Florida Supreme Court in the middle of that recount, um, according to this legal theory. Now, at the time, roles were reversed. Republicans wanted the courts to have power and authority to stop that. And Democrats were the ones saying, no, the federal courts, you know, should just back off. This is a local state issue. Let the state Supreme Supreme Court rule. Uh, But this is very problem. This would have been very problematic for a number of reasons. Number one, that this was the argument that Trump's team was using in Arizona um, and in uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania to get those state legislatures to overturn the uh, will of the voters. And basically, the underpinning of this theory means that essentially a state legislature could say, well, we don't we don't like how our mm-hmm. populace voted. We think there were some shady things. Um, we're going to go ahead and just um, have our electoral votes cast for the other guy. And they could do that, and courts would not be able to intervene. And you could have entire elections where people's votes would be disenfranchised that mm-hmm. way. So that's essentially what the the end game was with this. Um, they weren't successful in 2020. Um, and for those that recall, there was an active effort by Trump's legal team to prod those state legislatures in those states um, to get them to just uh, replace the electors. Yeah, that's probably something Trump's going to get indicted for out of, out of yeah, Georgia. That's going to be that's part of the Georgia case front and center and actually part of uh, the, the DOJ case as it yeah. relates to um, what happened with January 6th. But what's great is the court did rule six to three um, that this theory was invalid um, and had no place. Um, You basically had um, the three liberals who were joined by Roberts and by um, Amy Coney Barrett and by uh, Brett Kavanaugh and that opinion. Um, There were three justices, which does disturb me, that um, ruled in the dissent. And Alito, Thomas, and uh, Gorsuch, which yeah. I do not understand, because under that theory, I mean, it would be absolute chaos. The idea that courts could never intervene, I mean, it would take us back to like a Jim Crow time even, where, I mean, you, you could have state legislatures that invalidate entire classes of people under this crazy legal theory, and nobody could step in to right that wrong. Why have an election? Just let the Congress do it, right? Yeah, just let the state legislature. Ba- it would state, basically let the state, state legislature pick the yeah. president, essentially. That's basically in all cases. What, what they're asking for. Uh, so, again, very disturbing that three of our justices saw it that way, but thankfully six did not. They won out the day. Um, and it, it is interesting with some variation. There is this paradigm on the court because I do have a problem with liberals who just like to lump everybody together. You do have essentially these different factions on the court, though, even on the conservative side, right? Yeah. You have Alito and Thomas who are often in dissent um, on many opinions or tend to have the most extreme view on what's considered the right. Um, you have the three liberals. You have Roberts, who's probably closest to being in the middle, but is still right of center, who's de- the institutionalist, always kind of looking to protect the institution. He's the one that tried to find a 
uh, compromise on Roe v. Wade that would have yeah. overturned it, but was rejected. And then you have like Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, um, who have both shown to some degree that even though they're on the conservative side, firmly on the conservative side, they're not always on the same side as Alito and Thomas, that there is a bridge too far for them in some of these cases, and they do back off. So it's interesting how those factions have kind of taken shape on the court. If you listen to the, the legal podcast or experts, I mean, this is like your Sarah Isger or your David French, people yeah. that actually are experts and lawyers. Oh, yeah, follow this. Sarah yeah. Isger worked in the DOJ and, and all of that. Yeah, she's the, super all of that smart. kind of good stuff. What was I just talking? What were we talking about? You said, well, you said if you listen to them, we were, we were talking about the court and the factions and how they rule. And Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah. So if you listen to them, they bring a good point that it was Kavanaugh who was in the majority the most in this session. Last session, it was Keegan. Hmm. So it, they use this as a metric to show the court's actually functioning kind of like it's supposed to. The person that that was was a uh, is a is a liberal. They're in the, the the majority one session. The conservative is in the majority the next session. There's a lot of feeling I think amongst the the legal folks in in the United States that the Supreme Court is pretty healthy right now and is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Why is that so disconnected from the public's opinion of the Supreme Court right now? I, I again I think mostly. I mean, it would be to some degree without uh, the overturning of Roe, but I do think the overturning of Roe was a watershed moment. I do too. And that completely changed the court's perception among so much of the population and to a degree to where I don't know if the court will ever recover in our lifetimes from that. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's not unlike um, early in his term, like the botch withdrawal from Afghanistan by Biden mm-hmm. and how that started his downward slide uh, of course or economics and other stuff into that but i think for the court that was the the big catalyst and uh and so the decisions that followed have not helped um at all but i think everything is seen through the prism of roe now and so there's even a much greater uh, I, I think reaction and much more uh, vocal reaction than there would be without roe being part of all of this. Brandon, if it gets any hotter in the studio, we may have to start stripping down here. Yeah, I was saying I am getting like yeah. very... This might be... This is why we can't have cameras because we might have to like be taking shirts off here by the time <laughs> we get through our next 20 minutes. Uh, it's like a sauna in here, yeah. The last legal thing to talk about is on July 4th, there was a judge he said out of Texas who made this injunction that the federal government cannot reach out to social media companies for the purpose of asking them to remove things. Right. And I think it's interesting that he wrote 155 pages on this and he released it July 4th when he knew nobody was around to notice. Now, a lot of people have picked up on this, but this feels like a friendly judge who wrote 155 pages to explain his logic, knowing that the first time the appeals court gets a hold of this, this is going to get shot down. Yeah, I definitely believe so. I don't think the free speech argument will hold up here uh because again i think that the government reaching out to social media questioning asking them is not the same as like mandating that they pull something down and you know there's been a long history in the united states of the government um at times when it's come to sensitive information reaching out to old media or traditional media yeah um with the same kind of request so why would social media be different the federal government has the same free speech rights as you and i do And in this country, as we're learning, it's really hard to tell somebody you can't say something or you can't talk to that person. 
Let's switch to some presidential politics in the uh, the 2020, uh, 2024 race. Brandon, I, I am speechless. I mean, this week, with we're going to focus on Ron DeSantis, and let's start with the with the infamous video that he put out. So you had not seen that video I've until seen I it. until I thought until I said, "Oh it yeah, to it was you. You're the one who you yeah, had made me aware of you it. You had yeah. to think this is a parody. There is no way this is this is real. Oh yeah, that was definitely my first thought. In fact, I had to go online and I had to corroborate it because it it seems so ridiculous that a major party candidate would send that out. And and granted, I am the first one to call something out if I feel like it's overblown rhetoric or overheated. But this was clearly a case of where Ron DeSantis like as this um, pack and campaign supported video was going after Donald Trump for embracing the LGBT mm-hmm. community. And it was, DeSantis was all but saying, you know, I will not be a friend to that community no. and I will not support their rights. I mean, if there was any blatant attack on any particular group, I mean, this was it in terms of going after one specific group. And it was all encompassing. I mean, it touched upon all the issues. It touched upon drag queens. I mean, the ridiculous groomer nonsense. I mean, it was stereotypical, uh, but it, uh, it was horrible. Um, and it was just... You know, and one thing I find, I don't know, I just, there, there's so much that's, I find ridiculous and crazy about it, but also in the context of a race, because Ron DeSantis has to realize that as much as he's trying to outflank Trump on the right, like, if he were to somehow win the nomination, he has to run in a general, and all of this is unpalatable to a general election audience, much less like his home state of Florida, which has a very sizable gay community um, in Huge. southern Florida. I mean, it's just like, I, I don't understand it. So here, here, there's so many things about this video that, that I, I did not understand. I agree with Pete Budabet, with Pete Buttigieg. Wow, my language is going. Um, I, I get it. I'm oh, yeah, old. his response was I'm solid. Old. I'm out of touch. I don't understand young, hip people anymore. But I don't understand how you try to portray yourself as masculine by sandwiching yourself between cutout videos of oiled up, naked bodybuilders. Yeah, they were just inserted in there. I'm like, what is this? I I don't get that. Also, too, I'm not from the generation where you have to prove you're a hard ass by cutting in pictures of serial killers from movies and stuff, like the guy from Peaky Blinders or um, the guy who plays American Psycho, Christian Bale. You know, if I wanted to butch it up, I didn't didn't have to do stuff like Like that. that. I found that to be one of the most distasteful, disgusting, disgusting, unnecessary political ads I've ever seen. And what it just says to me, here's the mistake I made. I didn't realize DeSantis is a non-serious person because a serious politician who wants to win the presidency does not put out that ad. No. So I showed that ad. So I was completely lost. So I took it to my daughter, 23, just graduated with a mass communications degree, works in marketing. Politically aware, a little. Not Politics isn't, isn't her jam. Yeah. So I showed her the, the video and I took the sound off and said, okay, with, with no, not hearing what these two men are saying, she knows who the two guys are, what would you think this ad is about? If you didn't know who these two men are and you couldn't hear what they're saying, what is this ad? Hmm. And after looking at it with the sound off, she said, it's two gay men in a fight and the young gay man is obviously mad at the old gay man. She's like, that's what I would take away from that. And I'm like, ah, okay, that, huh? that makes sense. Yeah, that tracks. Then she said something to me that that made sense. She said, while I think this ad is dumb and disgusting and stupid, this ad is for 18 to 30-year-old males who are always online. 
this ad is for the Joe Rogan crowd. Ah, that's a good this point. This is yeah. for the bros, she said. She's like, you're struggling with this because you're you 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 know using your old man lens and this should be this way and this should be that way. She's like, you have to think like a 27-year-old male who's online 24 hours a day. That's who this ad is for. And I'm like, okay, that at least made some sense. The hyped-up masculinity aspects uh, definitely makes sense. And if that's who the target audience is. So... <laughs> I guess, I guess too now fighting is something we do. <laughs> if there's a business problem, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, they just, they just fight now. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that's where we are. It's, it's, I mean, it is, so is Holly going to fight DeSantis because they're both men and that's what men do. Also, Ron he DeSantis. He might get his shoes scuffed. I don't see Holly as the type of guy that gets in fights. <laughs> Holly looks like a biter to me. Um, Brandon, you and I are both under six foot tall. Okay. Yeah. We, we, you know, most men are under six foot yeah. tall. Ron Santis is a good five eight, five nine. He's just mm-hmm. an average size average height, yeah. guy. When you make videos like that, you make you you make yourself look smaller, weaker, oh yeah, vulnerable, and to your point, disgusting. And what woman, for fuck's sake, what woman looked at that and said, "Yeah, yep, that's that's who I'm voting for." I think the thing is, is anybody even trying? Have they just decided to give it to Trump? Because in back-to-back that day, I saw that interview from Mike Pence where he just looked completely feckless and just absolutely just neutered. Why are you even here? Is there anybody in the Republican field outside of Chris Christie who's honestly here to run? No, because nobody will stand up to Trump. They seem to think that their path to the nomination is by not angering Trump and trying to capture part of his base. But again, like we've said here before, when given a choice between Trump and Trump light, the MAGA voters will always go for Trump. So Mm -hmm. who is their core audience? And if they're not willing to stand out and distinguish themselves from Trump, like I I don't get it. And you keep waiting for the shoe to drop. Like, when are they going to do it? We've had two indictments now they've had opportunity, but still like they won't do it. Like, what does it take? I mean, clearly, I don't know that any of them are ever going to do it. And it almost makes it like Nolan Void. Like, why even have a debate? It's like they're just waiting for the problem to take care of itself. Yeah. Ron well, DeSantis is waiting for Trump to be taken off the board by the DOJ. Well, I mean, Joe Petticone, who writes for The Bulwark, who speaks to a lot of members of Congress, like on Capitol Hill directly, several on condition of anonymity will tell him that they're just waiting for Trump to die. I mean, they're waiting for yeah. him to just— like something to die happen. literally or die legally right some way I mean, they're like we're just going to sit here until something takes him something out. happens that is not running for president that's not a strategy Do you know why yeah. none of them are gaining because none of them are running for president besides chris christie yeah you don't apply for the job of president in a meek timid way <laughs> and you don't ask permission to run and you don't wait to to say anything about the front runner runner until the time's right you go out and you kick that dude in the balls day after day after day mm. that's what being a presidential campaign is exactly brandon i like to fantasize that as a campaign manager i can get a lot of people elected president i think i could get ron DeSantis elected president if we could wind back the clock to his announcement, that announcement's going to be an all-day Florida event, right? Our, our, our pitch to the country is we want to make America Florida. So we're going to start with just the governor going around the state to colleges, barbecues, restaurants, meeting the people of Florida. 
ending up in Tallahassee at a massive party, huge barbecue. The governor's there. He's playing football with kids. He's throwing the ball around. Fox News is all day, ends up a concert, and then he makes his announcement. And his announcement is, one, Ron, every time you say the word woke, I'm going to punch you straight in the face <laughs> because that, that's a childish term. We're, yeah. we're adults now, and we're going after the adult vote. So we're going to use this opportunity to explain that the Make America Florida thing it's a freedom agenda. Florida is thriving because the amount of personal freedom that Governor Ron DeSantis has bestowed upon that state. They are the state that took 500,000 people away from California. They are a state that has no, no sales tax. They are a state that the economy is moving because of the freedom that he has provided through COVID, through the vaccine, and just generally being an awesome person. And that's the message we're going to send. We're going to focus on not woke. If you say the word woke, every time you say the word woke, I'm going to stretch a rubber band at back. I'm going to hit you right in the balls with it because that's not a word we use anymore. We use the word freedom. And we talk about you as somebody who understands the power of freedom and will fight for freedom. That is an actual message that could resonate with the people you're trying to get on board with and that's a message that's durable to the general. So you don't yeah. kill yourself that if somehow Trump does die, which now I guess is the only way DeSantis would ever win, you point, have a yeah. fighting chance. Brandon, how easy How easy is it? How easy could it be? I, I mean, it could be very easy. But again, it's this, I mean, ill-fated drive to go to Trump's right. And that's why the focus on woke over anything and everything else. Freedom agenda is a great message. And it's, I mean, I would say it's a great message for the primary, but also for the general, but because he's so focused on the primary and so focused, but, but he's doing so like he's playing to the lowest common denominator, even within the primary, which is why he's using the word woke. And there, I mean, like, it's just like, you know, this verbal diarrhea of ridiculous terminology. I know this has come off as super douchey, but every time like DeSantis's campaign manager watches one of Trump's rallies, he's got to just feel sick inside. Looking oh, yeah. out at that crowd, that's who we have to connect with. That's who they're going after. I, I don't want to. I may not agree. I may not like it. But Ron, that's who you're going after. And even that group didn't like that ad. Yeah. No. But, well, yeah, it's... Ron DeSantis has just turned into everything everybody always said he was. Well, and it's interesting because you have one other contender in the race from Florida and apparently another one that may be entering, Rick Scott of Florida. I mean, did you ever oh, that? No, the, there are three from Florida. Yeah. You're probably the Miami mayor. The Miami mayor, yeah. Who, when Hugh Hewitt asked him what a Uyghur, if I thought about the Uyghurs, he's like, what's that? <laughs> yeah, you, you're done. You're uh, not a serious candidate, He's done. Sir. And, it, like, where is Rick Scott's lane? Like, who's a Rick Scott voter? I nobody. Mean, nobody. Nobody finds him appealing nobody. or attractive. And, I mean, and it's funny, as focus as Ron DeSantis is on the word woke, uh, uh, Rick Scott's focus is on socialist and communist, because every other word out of his mouth is, like, communist and socialist. Socialists and communists don't come stay out of stay the Florida state of Florida or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Ron DeSantis, I thought he would put up a better fight than this. He is just absolutely flaming out. Ugh. He is down in one poll, down to 15 or 16. He's three points ahead of Vivek Ramaswamy. How? Yeah, that's saying something. I mean, last year he was Republican Jesus. Right. Hey, when you're beating the shit out of Charlie Crist, it's really easy to feel like you're on top of the world. Yeah. Game's changed, dude. And he's just not ready to play this game I, his popularity in his own home state has also plummeted too um due to well, a lot of local issues yeah and, which we've talked about 
But the interesting thing, I think, and it'll be able to watch the coming months, is that you get into those early states, like the polling out of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, if he continues to tank there. People forget, like, at this point in the 20... Was a 2016 race? Yes, I've gosh, I have to go all the way back. Uh, you had people like um, uh, former governor of uh, Wisconsin, uh, blanking out on his name, um, who was basically one of the leading contenders oh, in the race. Yeah. He was number um, one in the polls. Scott Scott Walker. Scott Walker. Um, so you know, there's this tendency that there's this person who's riding high and they're the Republican savior, and then they flame out. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing with Ron DeSantis. But the problem is, Ron DeSantis has no like he has it. Uh, fired his staff. He has it completely overhauled yep. his campaign apparatus. I don't see where he's trying to change the momentum in nope. any conceivable he's just way. Staying pat. The other thing too, if I'm Ron's um, campaign manager, Ron, you got to be aware of your face. You got to be able to disconnect what you're feeling from your face. Yeah, I know it's hard. And I know you're used to being the governor where you just snap and everybody, and I get that. And that's Have you cool. seen him laugh, by the way? And you can't laugh. Oh, you my gosh. You can chuckle. His laugh is creepy. That's and, right. And you his, can't do that. His mouth opens like extra wide. Like I've never seen somebody whose mouth opens that wide when he laughs. You have a lovely wife and beautiful <laughs> children. We are only going to use them on the campaign trail when it visually makes sense. Yeah. Let me give you an example, Ron, where it doesn't. <laughs> marching your wife holding a child through a driving rainstorm in New Hampshire so that you can be at the front of a, a 4th of July week parade. It's not a good move Ooh, I didn't see because that you sat there looking absolutely miserable. Your wife looked like if she could teleport out of there, she would. And your kid was thrown a bit. Again, you have assets on the board to work with. You, you're just not putting them in the right places at the right time. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I don't think he will. And I, it would be interesting because I don't. I could see him getting shredded by Trump at a debate. Oh, like I he just, would be slaughtered. Yeah. My, my other thing is, Ron, go home tonight, and when you come back tomorrow, I want your 10 best jokes about yourself. I want 10 jokes where <laughs> you are the butt of the joke. If you're struggling with it, go to YouTube, punch in Ronald Reagan. He doesn't self-deprecate. And, That's and not his it's, it's, just, it's a master class in it. You're going to have to get a lot better at presenting yourself to retail politics situations learn how to talk if you and, have any chance at this you know with people and and basically hear them out and i mean just be like a common person i, I don't know that he has that ability like he doesn't have any close friends you're he a doesn't young have any man close... ron you could do this again because apparently you could run for the president into your 80s so <laughs> you've got learned, 30 yeah. some odd years to take another crack at this you're not dead yet but we can't have another mistake does florida have a two-term limit for governor he changed it. oh yeah they do they okay, do. so he's termed out, limited out after they change after it, this right? run. I think they changed it to allow him to run for president, not uh, resign. But they're not going to drop the two term. Okay, especially now for Ron. That yeah. that's not. I was going to say he's lost a lot of friends in the legislature now too. So it's not like it was. Ron DeSantis is a great example. Two terms is all all, yeah. all, all you want. You don't want any no. more of that because you're right. A couple of years from now, people are going to look back at the DeSantis era in Florida. I think very very differently. Agreed. You got anything fun you want to tell anybody about or anything? We're at our hour. I mean, I feel like we got to get out of here before I explain. Yeah. I feel like I've lost eight pounds just standing here. No, it's not fun, but um, I don't know if you caught. Uh, so former um, Congresswoman Liz Cheney was doing a lecture in New York City the yeah, other day. I think I saw Did you her. see that where the moderator was asking her some questions and she was basically talking how we're electing all these idiots to yeah. Congress, like oh, yeah. non-serious people, which can identify with. And it was funny because he asked her about Mark Meadows. He's like, you served with Mark Meadows when he 
he was in the house. Like, are you surprised <laughs> by his conduct that he got caught, caught up in this? And she was just a very straight, no, not surprised. Have you <laughs> not heard, at all. Heard about Mark Meadows is he will look straight at you, Brandon, and tell you exactly what you want to hear. Then he'll want to even look at me and tell me the exact opposite of what he just yeah. told you. That it, it just, whoever he's in front of, that's what, that's what he believes. Right. Did you sign up for Threads? Uh, no, I'm glad you brought that up, though. Um, some friends of mine have signed up. I w- I'm probably going to do an account and test it out. I had heard, I guess, the official numbers are there's 30 million people on it now. Yeah, I think they get a, they get a boost from, from uh, Instagram because you can use basically your Instagram account. So when you oh, sign okay. up, if you have an Instagram account, it's really easy to get on. So I think they're, they've solved a problem of they're taking Instagram's large user base and kind of pushing them onto I'll have to do that. I have an Instagram account, but I use it very rarely. It's very rare. I can't believe that we are this spun up about threads, Twitter, over microblogging sites. <laughs> Brandon, it's where we are now. These are the easiest things to create. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm surprised. Twitter, Twitter was done as a free week at a dev shop. Well, and why has it taken this long for somebody to create an alternative to Twitter I have at this point? No clue. Did you see that Elon is suing? Oh, yeah. Well, Brandon, I fired a bunch of people and said I didn't want them, and you hired them. And guess what? They took a bunch of stuff they learned from me, and they applied it to you. That never happens. That's supposed to work. That never happens. Elon Musk, (laughs) the the cheese is off his cracker. This is, yeah, I don't, I hope Threads actually consolidate some of the other smaller platforms that have tried. And I do hope they actually get sticky and... And put some pressure on, on Twitter to, to maybe change it or even. Yeah, I think that would be great. Because there was that other smaller platform I was going to try. I can't remember the name now. What was Oh, gosh. There's Mastodon. Mastodon. There's that was the one I was going to try. That was the most confusing thing it ever. It was so confusing. Yeah, I kind of rejected it and just like abandoned it. And many other people did too. But Any website or app in the social networking area that asked me to pick a server, I'm just going to stop the process. On. Yeah, I'm like, like I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. this is You should know that. I don't need to know what server I'm on. All right, we'll call it there. That's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.